Well, happy Mother's Day, everybody. My mom's here this morning, so we got mom power in the house. And uh, moms in general, we are so thankful for you and all that you do. Plus, let's be honest. I mean, think about it. We wouldn't be here without you. Like, literally. Mm -hmm. And I know that's like an absolutely horrible Mother's Day pastor joke, but it's the only one I could find on the internet. So it's the only one I got. So work with me. Anyway, uh, it is awesome to see all of you here today and those of you joining us online. And hey, if you're visiting for the first time today, you should know that you really couldn't have picked a better week to jump in with us here at Keystone because today we're beginning a brand new series called The Way Forward. And this series attempts to answer a great question that I think, if we're honest, we've all asked at one time or another. The question goes like this. What can you do when you don't know what to do. And a few of you are like, dude, you're reading my mail. I'm like, came in here thinking, maybe God will talk to me this morning, and maybe he will. I don't know. Right, but here we go. I'll do at least do my best to talk to you, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do you do when you don't know what to do? In other words, what can you do when you've made such a mess of your life that you just can't seem to find the way forward? Uh, those times when you've, like, run out of answers, and you feel, you feel more or less hopeless, and I'm telling you, like, as a pastor, I regularly have conversations with people who've reached moments like that in life for all sorts of different reasons and who really aren't sure of their next move because they just can't see past the mess of the present reality. Like, for some people, um, it's a financial mess. Like, something happened or, or something didn't happen that was supposed to happen. But, but now, like, every month when the bills come in, you know, there's just not enough to go around, and it's been awful, and it is awful, and they just can't seem to find the way forward. Uh, for other friends, it's a physical mess, and maybe a physical mess that was brought about by years of substance abuse. Uh, and if they're honest, their doctor has been warning them about the long-term dangers of their habit, but now, now like things inside their body just aren't working like they're supposed to be working. Uh, but, but here's the thing, that these substances have been a part of their life for so long that they can't really imagine existing without them. And it's, it's kind of been awful, and right now it is awful, and they just can't seem to find the way forward. And for certain other friends, it's a, some sort of relational mess that leaves them feeling hopeless. I mean, they realize it now, they, they didn't get it at the time, but they're kind of a mess who married a mess, right? Even though their friends all told them not to because that is a lot of mess in one house, right? Uh, but see, back then they had been confident that the person with whom they fell in love could be fixed. And now years later, they know it's way easier to fix a dog or a cat than it is to fix a person. Thank you. That's worth the price of admission right there. Yeah, right? You're like, yeah, because we didn't charge you anything. Okay, right, yeah. Yeah, but, but for them, it's been awful, and it is awful, and they just, they just can't seem to find the way forward. And then finally, there are the friends who've confessed to me that they've made a mess of their relationship with their adult children. It wasn't all their fault. It's mess on both sides, but, but it's bad enough that their kids really don't want anything to do with them anymore, and it hurts. I mean, they'd love to spend time with them and their grandkids, but the damage of the past has made that unlikely. It's made it feel impossible. And, and they've tried to tell themselves, you know, like, I guess I, I, guess I just don't care. I, I don't have to care. But, but they do care because uh, they were like hardwired to care. And it's been awful and it is awful. And they just can't seem to find the way forward. I'm telling you, messes in this life, 
that can leave us feeling hopeless come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. But, but here's, here's the thing, and this is really, really good news. Whatever the specific flavor of your mess, around here we're convinced that there's always hope. There's always a way forward because there really is a God who loves you more than you can possibly imagine, and it is He who provides you with that way. And that's what we're actually going to talk about in this series for the next four weeks. And today, what I want to do is begin by identifying what I really believe to be the first step of that way. Um, And it was articulated really memorably in an ancient letter that was addressed to early Christians living in the city of Rome, capital of the world at the time. And this letter was later included in the New Testament of our Bibles. And, and so before I show you uh, the relevant section of that letter, I need to give you a bit of a disclaimer. The author's letter uh, was a pastor named Paul. And Paul was writing in this letter specifically to followers of Jesus. And so if you're here this weekend and you're still not sure what you believe about Jesus or don't believe about Jesus, first of all, we are honored that you're with us. Uh, but, but second of all, you really need to know that what he's going to say, what we're going to read that he said, it really isn't intended for you. But, but here's the thing. I'd still invite you to lean in and consider what he has to say because Honestly, it can really help you understand how the Christian faith is supposed to work. Okay, so now in the middle of this letter, uh, right after Paul reminds these early believers that because of their trust in what Jesus had accomplished when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, they were and would always remain at peace in their relationship with God. It was amazing grace that brought them to this place. And so right after reminding them of that, Paul wrote the following. He says... We have an obligation because of everything that Jesus has done for you, because of the grace you've received, because you now stand at peace with God, we have an obligation. I think it's worth noting that Paul wrote them that they had an obligation because he didn't think they knew that they had an obligation. In fact, I suspect that many of them hadn't changed much of anything about their life after coming to faith in Jesus. And so consequently, and this isn't hard to imagine, I believe that many of them would have been struggling with the very same financial and physical and relational messes that they would have before they crossed the line of faith in Jesus. And so Paul wrote to inform them that because of their faith in Jesus, they had a very unique sort of obligation to keep. And that that obligation actually provided them with a way forward from the messes of their lives. And Paul presented it this way. He wrote that their obligation, he says, is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. And we'll talk about what that is in a second. He says, for if you live according to the sinful nature, and notice that apparently they had a choice. Uh, That's what this whole if thing is about. So Paul wrote, for if you live according to the sinful nature, he says, you will die. And uh, so you should know that when Paul wrote the phrase, uh, you know, live by the sinful nature, that was his fancy way of describing how his readers had lived before they came to believe in Jesus. Like that was the old them, the pre-Jesus them that naturally chose to live in ways that were outside of God's design, perhaps because they were unaware that God had a design for their lives. But now, he said, if you think about it, Paul's comment here identified something that's worth noting. Namely, and you probably noticed this, that when someone says yes to Jesus, their desires don't immediately change. And a few of you just went, uh-huh, right? In other words, a follower of Jesus may very well still desire to do 
all of the unhelpful, chaotic things that they were in the habit of doing before they came to believe in Jesus. And by the way, that's why it's not hard to find a Christian who's made a complete mess of their lives. I mean, before they said yes to Jesus, they had these destructive habits that had sort of wreaked havoc on their life and their relationships. And after they said yes to Jesus, well, they may have never reconsidered those habits in light of their newfound faith. And so consequently, and Paul noticed this, as they continued to live by the sinful nature, they were still inviting death, primarily in the form of financial, physical, and relational chaos, into their lives. And so as someone who cared deeply about them and who wanted the best for them, Paul wrote to remind them of their obligation to pursue another option. And he said it this way. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if you work to purge your life of everything that is outside of God's design, you'll have more life and less death and less mess in your life. I think he'd even say something like, you know, the great news is that because of your faith in Jesus, sin has no control of where you go when you die anymore. And because of your faith in Jesus, sin doesn't have to control your life now either. You've been invited to put to death your sin right here and right now. That's the way forward from whatever your mess And so Paul would say, if you're ready, here are some of the things, there are some things you're going to need to stop doing, things that you're in the habit of doing, and there are going to be some other things that you're going to need to start doing. I I think it's interesting that Paul uses such strong language to talk about how followers of Jesus should go after the sin in their lives, like images of execution, right? Like he told them there were things that were very much alive in their past, toxic habits and patterns of behavior that needed to be eliminated from their future. And so he told that to them then, but, but I think before we go any farther, as a pastor, I just got to ask you, man, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, is there anything like that in your life right now? Like, is there anything that needs to be put to death? And I, I suspect that for more than a few of us, in an honest moment, we confess, yeah, there are a few things And just a couple suggestions, you know, just for fun, um, not really fun, I don't know, a couple suggestions. Uh, Maybe for you, it's anger. Like maybe you were raised in a relationally volatile home where everybody had a short fuse and you always promised yourself that, man, once I get out, once I get married, my home is going to be different. We're not going to scream in my home. But if you're honest, if you're honest, to this day, whenever you don't get your way or whenever you feel devalued by someone you sort of erupt like a volcano, right? I mean, in love. <laughs> but, but yeah, there's this visceral response that just rises up in you. And, and in those moments, I mean, your spouse and kids, they really don't have any other choice but to try and manage you. And so like, if that's your story, I'm telling you, your anger has brought relational death into your life. But, but what if you didn't have to live that way? What if you were to decide that though anger was a part of your past, it wasn't going to be a part of your future, or at least not in quite the same way. What if you decided to execute your anger by retraining your heart to have more appropriate reactions and far less overreactions? Like, what if that's your way forward? Or maybe for you, um, 
you know, anger isn't really your thing, but man, it's, it's your relationship to money. I mean, maybe you were, you were growing up and, and you're, in those years you were growing up, from your perspective, your family didn't have what you thought you deserved. And so when you became an adult, you kind of overcompensated, right? By leveraging a lot of credit to build a lifestyle that's become unsustainable. And now you carry what can only be described as a suffocating amount of debt. And that was before interest rates started to rise. And and then to make matters worse, you know, you come here each weekend. I could just pause there. That's kind of funny. <laughs> you come here this week, each weekend, and you're exposed to all the amazing things that can be accomplished through giving money away. There's so many things in our world that need help, and you want to. So you're like, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what I want to do. But financially speaking, you just can't. It's so like maybe you've never thought about it in, in these terms, but your relationship to money is, is killing your potential and destroying your peace. But what if you decided to execute your old relationship to money by retraining your heart to be more content and more disciplined? What if you even signed up for the next round of Financial Peace University? We run it a few times a year around here. It's an incredible class. It'll help you make a plan, a sustainable plan for your resources. Like what if that's your way forward? Maybe just, just one more example. Maybe for you, it's a habit of being tragically impatient right? Like if you're honest, your blood pressure rises whenever someone gets in the way of you completing your tasks. Like, whoa to the dude in the minivan who cuts you off in traffic, right? Or dares to drive the speed limit on Fulton in the morning. I mean, seriously, everyone's laughing. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Sinners, all of, yeah, right, yeah. And they keep you from getting to your morning meeting on time. Or, or maybe the woman in front of you at line at Starbucks, and this is just a hypothetical, never happened to me, but, um, this woman had the audacity to stare blankly at the menu for three minutes before ordering a medium black coffee. <laughs> you may have a response that's not very Jesus-y, hypothetically, right? I mean, you may have never thought about it in these terms, but your habit of impatience is quietly wreaking havoc on your relationships and our world. And at times when it sort of goes public, it's made a mess of things. See, the habit is so entrenched, you don't even choose it anymore. It just sort of happens. And so it's hard to imagine being different. But, but what if you were to decide to execute your impatience by retraining your heart to be more peaceful and more gracious? Like you decided, man, that was a part of my past, but it's not going to be a part of my future. And so what if that's the way forward for you? I mean, you, you go after some of this stuff. I mean, it could change everything. Now, now, at this point, um, I know what many of you are thinking, like, because that's, that's interesting to think about and easy to identify, you know, problem areas, and it's even fine to decide to change, but like you've tried in the past, and it's never really happened, and so how do we begin to actually change our habits and retrain our hearts? Uh, because honestly, it doesn't seem possible, but see, the good news is that if you're a follower of Jesus, and hang with me here, you don't have to execute the sin in your life by yourself. Seriously, check out that last verse from Paul again. He says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Not, not by like discipline and you're going to get it done and you're going to kind of do the things you need to do and try harder and read a bunch of books and listen to a bunch of podcasts. He's like, yeah, maybe that'll help. But by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. This is an absolutely critical for, concept for us to understand. 
as we seek a way forward from our messes. I mean, Paul just told us that as it turns out, and this is one of my favorite things ever, Christianity is not a self-help movement. It's really not. Honestly, it's, it's a partnership between a follower of Jesus and someone who Jesus called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus promised to send to help his followers. Like after he exited the planet, he was going to send the Spirit. And as it turns out, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers a follower of Jesus to change from the inside out. And all that it takes for a follower of Jesus to activate that potential is to surrender their mess to his higher power. Shout out to all my friends at AA. Mm -hmm. Right. Surrender their mess to his higher power and to declare that they are unable to do everything they need to do in order to change without intervention. Like according to Paul, once this handoff of trust occurs, the spirit begins his work. And so as Paul continues to write, and I love this, he actually fleshed out this point about the Spirit by identifying three specific ways that the Holy Spirit can help a follower of Jesus. So I want to look at them briefly with you. First, Paul said this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit desires to lead followers of Jesus. Said differently, he will direct, he will nudge, but we still have to follow. He's not going to short-circuit your will. We have to yield to his will. The, the, the promise is the Holy Spirit will, will, again, will prompt followers of Jesus in the way we should go. But, but then it's our move to decide whether or not to let him lead, whether we'll choose to leave the well-worn path that we've been on and then to follow his path. That's the first way that the Holy Spirit can empower a way forward. Uh, Paul described the second way in these terms. Here's what he wrote. He said, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, to daughtership that's not even a word, but you know what I mean. You know, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. And look at this, that we are God's children. And I know, like, it's a little hard to follow there, but I'm telling you, this is huge. What Paul is saying here is that when, whether someone recognizes it or not, when they said yes to Jesus, in Jesus' invitation to be reconciled to God, you know, by placing their faith in what he accomplished on the cross, like, in that very moment, the Holy Spirit gave them a new identity. Said more personally, the moment that you placed your faith in what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross and covered your sins, in that very moment, the Holy Spirit gave you a new identity. Even though you don't necessarily feel any different. Like from heaven's perspective, you are no longer who you were. And the best way to, to kind of think about it that I've ever come upon is, is the image of an international adoption, right? Like a family somewhere in the world travels to another area of great need, and they sort of go through an extremely long process, and eventually they are given custody of a child, and then they put the child on a plane, they get on the same plane, maybe they get to sit next together if they pay extra for seats, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then they fly back 
to the country of their origin. And then there's a legal process once they land because they go into a courtroom and they go before a judge and the judge basically says, you know, do you desire this child to be a part of your family? And they basically say, yes, that's why we're here. And then eventually somewhere along that, that ceremony, the gavel falls and from a legal perspective, that adopted child's identity changes. I mean, they look like the same child who entered the courtroom that day. They probably feel like the same child that entered the courtroom that day. But something has happened legally that they have been given new potential and new hope as a result of their new identity. They have a new family now. And in the same way, Paul reminds people who've chosen to trust in Jesus that, listen, You're no longer slaves to sin. That's who you were. But now, because of your faith in Jesus, you have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. You're a part of his family. And the implication is that because you're no longer who you were, you no longer need to live the way you used to live. Like on the cross, God had literally purchased them by paying for their sins and then didn't stop there, drafted adoption papers for them. I mean, it's easy for us to miss, but I'm telling you, that would have been an image that resonated powerfully with Paul's original audience. Adoption was common in the Roman world, and so Paul's readers would have understood that under Roman law, not only did the adoptive parent assume the debt of the adopted child, but the adopted child also assumed an obligation to the adopted parent to become a contributing member of the family and to represent the family in public. Not to earn anything, but because of who they now were. And so Paul wrote that because of the Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus had been given a new identity as sons and daughters of God. And again, they are no longer who they were, and so they no longer had to do what they had always done. There was now a way forward. So that's the second way that Paul identified that the Holy Spirit can help a follower of Jesus. His third revelation about how the Spirit functions actually brings us full circle. So check out what he wrote next. Uh, As he continues, Paul says, now, if we are children, like if we have this identity shift, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're part of the family of God now. But then there's this interesting if statement. He says, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit invites followers of Jesus to suffer. And I know that may strike you as odd. So what exactly does Paul mean when he writes that followers of Jesus are invited to share in the sufferings of Christ. This drove me nuts this week for about three hours. I was trying to figure out what he was talking about. But eventually, I realized something. Um, I think it has everything to do with a follower of Jesus seeking to execute the sin in their life. And I think that because of something Jesus' disciple Peter wrote in another letter to early Christians. Like in a similar passage in which he encouraged them to go after the sin in their lives, he wrote the following. And this is Peter, not Paul. Here's what Peter said. He says, therefore, because just all the stuff Jesus did for you, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. 
Like, be ready to suffer in your body because whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. In other words, Jesus suffered in his body because of our sin and conquered it. And in the same way, we have been invited to go to war with the sin in our lives and we can conquer it too with the help of his spirit. And I know that's hard It requires us to stop doing some things that we want to do and start doing some things that we don't want to do. It requires us to suffer, but the good news is that when we choose to walk this path, again, we don't walk it alone. God's Spirit will lead us and empower us from the inside out. He will begin to change us, to remake us, to resurrect us in the image of Jesus. In other words, he will show us one step at a time the way forward. And I'm telling you, that is good news for all of us who have ever felt hopeless because of a mess that we've made in life. And before, before we dismiss, um, just a special treat because it's Mother's Day. Um, I want us to listen to a song together. And the song actually came out very recently as I was working on this series. And to be honest, the first time I heard it, um, I was brought to tears. And so fair warning, get out your Kleenex. Um, The song was written from an incredibly messy place, a place where the writer was having trouble seeing the way forward. And the song celebrates the reality that the same God who rose Jesus from the grave is also with us in our darkest moments and always offers us the hope of a better tomorrow and a way forward. The song is called Thank God I Do, and it's a song of praise to the God who will never, ever, ever leave us. So let's listen to this together, and then I'll return and close our time in prayer.
Father, this morning, we celebrate your love for every one of us. That we don't go after sin in order to earn your love, but we go after our sin because we're loved and because you've shown us a better way and you've empowered us to pursue that way by your spirit. And so this week, I pray that you would alert us to the things in our life that that we're a part of our past, but that should not be a part of our future. Because sin always brings chaos into our world. And we desire to be people of peace who bring peace into our world. So please, by your spirit, help us pay attention this week. 
give us the courage to do what we need to do, maybe for something we've ignored for a very, very long time. And as we do, I pray that we would find more life in our life and that your light would shine through us. Thank you for the grace in which we stand. Thank you for Jesus, your son, our savior. And it's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.